From 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR, this is Like Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll learn about the anti-LGBTQ practices taking place at some Wisconsin voucher schools. Then we'll hear from a same-sex couple about their journey to becoming parents. I mean, to be honest with you, the whole process was amazing. We had a lot of questions up front, and it all felt kind of surreal, like even up to the birth, it's like, is this really happening? Plus, we'll learn about Milwaukee's long history of drag performance. There's this whole extensive history out there and heritage that so few people know about and so few people even realize influence them in so many ways. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Like Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us today. Wisconsin's school choice program has been popular among parents and students since it first began in the early 90s. Religious schools have become an increasingly large part of the program and now account for 95% of participating schools. Despite the fact they get public funds, these schools aren't held to the same standards as public schools. A report by Wisconsin Watch found there are policies that discriminate against LGBTQ students and families in these schools. Phoebe Petrovic is an investigative reporter for Wisconsin Watch, and she joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers to share more. So the schools that are being uh, talked about in this report, these are schools that are being given a lot of public funding in the form of vouchers. And I think a lot of people would assume this kind of discrimination would be illegal. Why isn't that the case? Yeah. So I looked at voucher schools, which are private schools that take public funds. And because of the way that federal and state law is set up, they are able to engage in behavior or treatment of LGBTQ or disabled students that would be illegal in public schools, even though some of the schools we looked at um, have 100% of their students on publicly funded vouchers. So my series looked at treatment of disabled students or students with disabilities and also students who are LGBTQ+. And so the laws are sort of different regarding both on this federal level, but at the state level, there is no law protecting LGBTQ plus or disabled students from discrimination once they are enrolled in a voucher school. So our state law limits how voucher schools can admit voucher students, but once that student is enrolled, school policies apply. And so if they decide that it's intolerable to have a gay or trans student and they want to expel them, they can. Federal Title IX, which is supposed to be the non-discrimination law at the federal level, it exempts religious institutions from complying with anti-discrimination laws if it runs counter to their religious beliefs. Rather, I should say, you know, Federal Title IX has a religious exemption, and 95% of voucher schools in Wisconsin are religious. So putting aside the fact that public funds are going toward supporting religious institutions, uh, as you mentioned, many of these schools have anti-LGBTQ plus policies. What do those policies really look like? Yeah, so it runs the gamut from explicitly saying that if there is a student who is gay or trans and wants to live fully in their identity, that they could be disciplined or expelled. 
I found at least 17 schools that had some policy specific to trans kids in particular, saying that um, trans students could not be referred to with the pronoun that aligns with their gender identity or their name. So if you were um, assigned male at birth, if you were born a boy, but you are a trans girl, the school will refuse to acknowledge you as a trans girl, you know, requiring trans students to use the bathroom that aligns with their natal sex instead of gender identity, even going so far as to say that uh, students can't self-administer puberty blockers that might be prescribed um, by a doctor if those are intended for gender transition. It really runs the gamut. And then we also looked at, because I was looking at handbooks and also the websites and policy statements and documents I could find online for 123 schools. I found schools that didn't have anything explicitly discriminatory or exclusionary in their handbook, but instead they said that they had a statement of faith that underlaid everything you know that the school did. And that statement of faith would say things like, we believe that there are two God-given and immutable sexes, man and woman, it's a sin to be transgender. It's a sin to be gay and be in a gay relationship or marriage. Those schools too, we counted in this because as I spoke to um, an education scholar who said, you know, that can have a discriminatory intent behind it, even if it's not further codified in a policy. So one of the things this report looks at is essentially how this school-sanctioned discrimination filters down to the students in other ways. How does this end up playing out for kids at these schools who are LGBTQ plus? Yeah. So one of the things that I've been hearing in in response to this the reporting and sometimes pushback to the reporting is that adults will say, well, families have the right to choose the school that aligns with their values. So if parents don't want a Christian education, they don't need to send their children there. And what that misses is that there are human beings, people, children who go to these schools who might be LGBTQ and their parents don't know, and then they're forced to be in an environment that might be antagonistic to them. So I in this most recent story or this last story in the series featured the story of Nat Worth, who was actually the valedictorian in 2019 of Sheboygan Lutheran. And he was closeted all through high school. He didn't want to go to the school, but he didn't have a choice. And he was forced to sit through classes where teachers would make homophobic and transphobic statements. And, you know, he was told that who he is is sinful. And that can have a really damaging effect you know, on a student's self-esteem, you know, Nat has done a lot of great work to put that trauma behind him, but it was really difficult. Um, And that's one of the things that students who had actually experienced this and advocates have mentioned to me is that it's one thing for a parent to decide they want their child to go there, but that child is their own person who might have their own identity that it's not safe to disclose to the parents or the parents don't agree with, um, and they might encounter those assumptions. Uh, Another or those, you know, damaging behaviors. Um, an LGBTQ activist I spoke to, Ali Muldrow, also expressed concern that having policies that make it okay to treat LGBTQ people differently or to discriminate them sort of sends a message to the kids that they can do that too. So that it's it's kind of like creates a culture of um, harm. I mean, I think that makes sense if, if kids are getting the message that these are people who are unworthy in some way or less than in some way, uh, it, it does stand to reason that they would treat them as such. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the quote from the advocate was she said that you're sending a message to kids who identify as LGBTQ that they're not wanted and not welcome, and that you're sending a message to all students, ones who don't identify as LGBTQ, that it's okay to make LGBTQ students feel unwanted and unwelcome. This is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers, and I'm speaking right now with Phoebe Petrovic from Wisconsin Watch. Uh, for all intents and purposes, if, if these schools have 100% voucher kids, to me, these sound like public schools. We might not call them that, but they do seem to be public schools. And yet they are, of course, discriminating against a large portion of the public. School choice has really been championed by a lot of politicians, but specifically Republican politicians in Wisconsin. Has anyone spoken out about what's happening at these schools, about these um, discriminatory policies? Mm-hmm. So I've seen on Twitter that various Democrats in the Senate and the Assembly have been sort of outraged about the reporting. The thing that I want to know is, you know, I didn't bring anything new to the fore. You know, I spent a lot of time looking through 123 schools' materials, um, but this has been the status quo for decades. You know, since school choice um, was expanded to permit religious schools to receive vouchers, none of this was new. This has been sort of the status quo for a long time. And people like Nat Worth or other students have been sort of suffering in silence while they attend schools um, that are subsidized by taxpayers, you know, that can discriminate. And that's sort of one of the the really the key thing that I want to bring home is that I've had people respond to the series being like, well, this just comes across as you you don't like private schools. Private schools are allowed to do what they want. They have freedom of religion. And what my story and series really tried to surface was that these are publicly subsidized, publicly funded private schools. As you said, some of them, 32 of them, have 100% of their students on vouchers. And public schools would not be able to act this way. It would be illegal for public schools to treat students in this way. And so that's really sort of the rub here. And the, the policy question that people are raising is like, should we permit public dollars to support private schools that are allowed to act differently and in a way that would be illegal if they were public. It it does seem like this kind of bigotry has been cloaked behind religiosity, but of course a lot of things have been justified through religious beliefs, perhaps most notably in our nation's history, slavery and segregation. Are there limits to this religious exemption? And are we seeing any efforts to define these limitations? So currently, there's only one state in the entire country that prohibits this sort of discrimination in a voucher program. That's Maryland. And a religious Christian school is currently challenging that policy in court. So that's winding its way through the court. And you're absolutely right. The education and law and legal scholars that I spoke to pointed out that through the 1900s, sincerely held religious beliefs was a way to justify exclusion of Black students and was used to support and justify segregation. And eventually in the 80s, the U.S. Supreme Court said that you couldn't use a religious exemption to justify segregation and white supremacy. These legal scholars and education scholars have proposed that the question has now evolved to whether or not it is legal or constitutional for churches or religious institutions to justify anti-LGBTQ discrimination on the basis of religion. But that's really a question that needs to be debated or 
sort of duked out in a courtroom right now and, and hasn't really been, certainly not at the Wisconsin level. Um, and part of that is, you know, I've heard from education advocates who prior to this Supreme Court election, you know, they were worried about bringing a case before the Wisconsin Supreme Court and creating bad law that would create worse precedent for kids. Justice Brian Hagedorn is considered a swing justice, but he is a co-founder of and sits on a board of a private Christian school that bans gay people. The difference being that they are not a voucher school. They don't take vouchers. But, you know, there was a concern about creating worse precedent. And with this new election of a liberal justice of the pre- to the Supreme Court, perhaps that could be challenged in Wisconsin. Well, we will see what the future holds. Phoebe, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing your work. Thank you so much for having me. Phoebe Petrovic is an investigative reporter at Wisconsin Watch, and she spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers in June. You can find the full report at wuwm.com. For many LGBTQ couples, the path to parenthood is different than for heterosexual parents. For Jake and Nick, they went to the Gestational Carrier Program, a part of the Reproductive Medicine Center at Freighter Hospital, to help start their family. Jake's best friend volunteered to be their gestational carrier, and the three of them worked with Dr. Kate Scheuer, a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist at Freighter, to bring Eleanor into their world. All three of them joined me to talk about their unique path to parenthood. Jake starts by explaining how their journey began. We knew very little. Um, we knew we wanted to become parents, and we didn't know necessarily if it would be through surrogacy, through adoption, uh, but we knew very little. So we started the process very early to just do information gathering. So that's about it. We didn't really know much. No, we really didn't know. So what led you to the option of surrogacy when it comes to all the ways you can become parents? Yeah, so we had both communicated that we wanted to be parents early in our relationship. We had been together for how many years? Uh, well, it's 10, almost 10 now. So it was probably about, about seven. Yeah. We'd been married for maybe two together for seven at that point. So we both knew, um, but we, Bonnie Jean, actually, my best friend came to us and offered to be our surrogate. So that kind of sealed the deal. You know, it was, it was one of the options we really wanted and her proactiveness made it happen. So Dr. Shore, we'll bring you in here. Can you explain the process of working with Jake, Nick, and Bonnie Jean when it comes to uh, setting up and making sure that they're going to have a successful run of surrogacy when it comes to having a child? Sure. So I think Jake and Nick first came to our clinic to discuss the process and then later came with Bonnie Jean as an actual patient because we evaluate Bonnie Jean separately as a potential, what we call gestational carrier. So technically, medically, we refer to what they did as using a gestational carrier because she carried an embryo created with egg and sperm from another woman and one of them. Just as an aside, that's to be differentiated from true a surrogate, which is where a woman undergoes an insemination with someone's sperm, but it's her egg. But Bonnie Jean was a what we call a gestational carrier. So we usually encourage, we have a multiple step process in our clinic where we encourage patients to consider creating embryos first and then pursuing the gestational carrier part. They had a great situation and such a great story of having a best friend from forever who was willing to be their carrier. So it was very easy, truthfully. So even though you all had this dynamic and of course your friendship with Bonnie Jean, 
I imagine there's still some vetting that goes into this process. Can you explain, you know, I'm sure there's medical evaluations, but is there also psychological evaluations that come to make sure everyone in the party is in agreement in moving forward? Yes. So we kind of review a potential carrier's history, um, and we do ask a gestational carrier to see our psychologist. We have a psychologist with specialized training in what we call third-party reproduction. And if someone is a carrier, we ask her spouse to see the psychologist as well. Yeah. Jake and Nick, you know you wanted to be parents together, but as you were going into this process with Bonnie Jean being a gestational carrier, um, what questions did you kind of go through together as a couple in addition to what you had to go through in the process medically? Yeah, I mean, I mean there was so much, so many questions. Um, I, I, I mean, yeah, I guess what, one of the big things is I actually made a uh, career change in 2018 and ended up going back to school uh, to get my master's degree. So that was also kind of another timeline that I and Jake and I were working with together uh, along with, well, when do we start our family? I knew my program would take two years and I knew that uh, we didn't want to wait you know, much longer than that. So we had kind of the process going at the same time as my master's program. Uh, but that was another kind of large uh, other separate piece that we were talking through to kind of make sure all the pieces fit in our in our timeline and in our, in our lives during those couple of busy years. And, and I think in terms of other questions, I mean, to be honest with you, the whole process was amazing. We had a lot of questions up front and the, it all felt kind of surreal, like even up to the birth, it's like, is this really happening? You know, you try to set your expectations low because, you know, you're hoping for the best, but you don't want huge disappointment either. Um, so, we, so yeah, we had a ton of questions throughout the process. Like, is this even going to happen? Um, and it's just surreal that it actually, uh, we have Eleanor now. Mm-hmm. How old is Eleanor? Uh, nine months. She'll be 10 months at the end of uh, this month. So it, it, the months are flying by. It's, it's quite amazing. So when it comes to going into this process, I imagine that especially when it comes to LGBTQ couples who also need to think about setting aside additional resources when it comes to becoming parents. So what resources did you need or what did you think about as you were leading up to this process? And what did you discover that, okay, we might need to adjust our game plan and account for these needs that we need to meet as well? Yeah, I mean, obviously there's a large financial piece that goes into that. Um, So we, you know, planned ahead in terms of making sure we were able to do that. Um, it wasn't as cumbersome as we thought, you know, because we, we, we paid as we went, we planned in advance. That, that's very true. It was, you know, payments every couple months or every three months as we, you know, went through the entire process. It wasn't just a one-time upfront payment. So we were able to budget, uh, you know, our, our mortgage and other, other expenses to kind of make that work to fit in those extra expenses that came with surrogacy every couple months or so, uh, and through the whole fertility process with Freydert. Dr. Scheuer, can you explain a bit more about the fertility process and some of the things that you have to go through when you're working with uh, LGBTQ couples, especially? So the first part is usually, you know, for them would be creation of embryos. And we used an egg donor, an anonymous egg donor, who similarly has kind of gone through the process of medical vetting and has seen a psychologist and anonymously donates her eggs. And then embryos are created from that and are frozen. Um, And then ultimately the coordination of a cycle with a gestational carrier. So we refer to this whole umbrella as what we call third-party reproduction with donor egg, 
Some couples need to use donor sperm. Some couples don't have a uterus and they use a gestational carrier. So we kind of describe all of that as third-party reproduction. And all clinics that use any third-party reproduction comply with very strict guidelines put out by the Food and Drug Administration, by the FDA, for specific screening for infectious diseases that have to be done in a certain way within a certain time period of when embryos are created or carried by an individual, um, in addition to guidelines for like psychological screening by ASRM, which is the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. So we follow all of their guidelines, but they're very specific, very detailed. We have yearly inspections by the FDA to make sure we're compliant with all third-party requirements. So it's a very specialized area. And I imagine with your work, you form a good relationship with the people and the parents that you're working with. Um, But has this been the first time in a while since seeing Jake and Nick? Like, when do you branch off after a baby is brought into the world? Well, they were great and sent pictures of their adorable daughter. And we have a clinic Instagram site and we posted pictures. And I think the picture of them with their baby got the most likes of like any other picture (laughs) we had. So... Uh, We love seeing the babies. I mean, it's an amazing journey, right? Truly from the creation of the embryo or initially seeing a couple when they walk in the front door, um, we're really glad to welcome everyone and help everyone with family building because it's such an important mission. I will say one of the first things that Jake and I had noticed, uh, I think it was our first meeting at Freighter was the front desk staff, the doctors, the nurses all had rainbow flag pins on their Mm -hmm. ideas, which was Right away, we felt like that. This is where we belong, uh, creating our family. And we just immediately felt welcome and just really loved it. And not to mention, you know, they were amazing in every other way, too. But that just was like kind of the icing on the cake. That's nice to hear. Do either of you have any advice for any other gay couples out there who are thinking about starting their own family and, and reflecting on your journey and now having your daughter born and healthy and with you? I would say just take it one step at a time. It's such a daunting process. I think the first thing we did was talk to a center that dealt with surrogacy and gestational carriers. And then we kind of took a step back. And when Bonnie Jean, you know, we we finalized that she was going to do this for us. And so we can do this on our own. We don't, you know, we, we can work with freighter. They, they kind of had all the pieces we needed, um, referred us to resources that we needed and kind of walked us through the whole process. We just can't say enough amazing things about Freighter. Um, but one step at a time, it's 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 doable. It just, it feels like a long shot, but you know, we're proof that you can have a beautiful baby even if you're the same sex couple. Is there a moment or a core memory within this journey that stands out to you? I think the, a core memory, uh, there are actually a, a lot of them. Um, I will truly never forget the day of implantation. Um, There were just so many people in the room with us. There were the two of us. There was Bonnie Jean, the doctor, uh, embryologist. I think there was even a tech there as well. And we were all there just to create this one beautiful life. Uh, It was just a, a surreal moment that I'll truly never forget. And I remember that as well. I, it still kind of chokes me up a little bit. And I, when I looked around and, and realized all of these people were in this room, as Nick said, to, for us to help us have a baby. And it was just an incredible moment. And for you, Dr. Shore. Yeah, for us, one of our favorite moments is that was the first pregnancy ultrasound. 
We talk about when you first see the heartbeat, we usually will do an ultrasound around six or seven weeks when you can first see the heartbeat on ultrasound. And it's amazing. It's like a tearjerker. It gets us every time. Now, I think poor Bonnie Jean was feeling really nauseated by that point. She was. <laughs> Maybe that wasn't the highlight for her. I'm speaking no. for her, but that's always like the, you know, gotcha moment. Uh, a, a, another really incredible memory, which is uh, obviously seeing our daughter after she was born. Um, but we had uh, surprised Bonnie Jean uh, after, and uh, Eleanor, her middle name is Jean, uh, after Bonnie Jean. Uh, so when we shared that news with her uh, and her husband was next to her, we all immediately started crying. It we was all a sobbed. beautiful moment. <laughs> it was a great surprise. Um, can I add one more memory? Of course, yeah. I guess just the story overall is just so amazing. Like I already kind of alluded to in the, in the beginning of the conversation, Bonnie Jean and I have known each other since we were 15. And, you know, when I came out to her in my early 20s, I remember talking about wanting to have a family and how hard it would be. And she said, I'll help you have a family. Don't worry about that. And, you know, I kind of forgot about that. But when she met Nick after, you know, and then after we were married, she was the best woman in our wedding. And when she actually came to us and proactively volunteered to be our carrier, uh, it was just an incredible moment. I, I didn't actually think that would happen. You know, people say things and, you know, then we went to Freighter and the rest was history. Jake and Nick are from Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. They were able to have their daughter, Eleanor, through the gestational carrier program at Freightert. Dr. Kate Scheuer is a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist at Freightert and the Medical College of Wisconsin. We spoke last year. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. In about 15 minutes, we'll share some tips on how to have a conversation when a child asks, is Santa real? They can decide if they want to keep up that kind of belief about certain things like unicorns. It would be a really great example, I think. Or if they want to, you know, explain to them, you know, the, um, the reality. But first, we'll learn about the long history of drag in Milwaukee. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. There's no doubt a cultural conversation around drag. On one hand, some drag performers have become the pinnacle of popular culture, like RuPaul or Milwaukee's own Trixie Mattel. On the other hand, states throughout the country are banning drag performances. But this contrast of high praise and demonization has been a part of drag from its very beginning, as authors Michael Takash and BJ Daniels can tell you. Their book, A History of Milwaukee Drag, explores the roots and evolution of drag here in the city, and how our current conversation echoes what we've seen in the past. Takash and Daniels join Like Effects Joy Powers to share more. In reading this book, I think a lot of people would be surprised to learn just how early on in Milwaukee's history that we start to see drag performances. What was that like back in the, you know, late 1800s? So the art of drag, as we know it, you know, as an art form, really began in the United States 
around the end of the Civil War. And there were a number of traveling minstrel shows that went around the country raising money for Civil War widows. And one of those companies was Francis and Kelly. And Francis Leon, who is known now <laughs> to be the first drag performer in Wisconsin history, came to Milwaukee on June 7th, 1884, and performed a really groundbreaking show at Nunemacher's Opera Hall. And at this point, he was really at the height, if not a bit of a decline in his career. He and his partner, romantic and business, had traveled the world, had gone to Australia, to Europe, to Asia, uh, performing these numbers in which Leon, in female attire, portrayed this prima donna, this woman who was being wooed by several men. And the audience was in on the joke that this was not a woman, but an actual man dressed as a woman for their entertainment. In fact, the Milwaukee audience uh, reviewed the show after that June 7th performance and said that Francis Leon could make a fool of a man if it didn't know that he was a man. And most people in the audience don't believe that Francis Leon is male at all. So it was really fascinating to read this and understand like kind of what the mindset and the mood of the times were, which were, you know, that this emerging art form separate from the minstrel shows and evolving into something really dramatically different um, was happening at a time when, you know, Milwaukee didn't have paved streets. It didn't have electricity. Most homes didn't have indoor plumbing, um, but they had drag shows and they were seen as a sign that Milwaukee was maturing and becoming more sophisticated and really not just this roughneck pioneer town anymore, but that we had arts and culture. One of the running themes through this book is kind of the dichotomy with which we perceive drag on stage, and then how we view female male impersonation, as it was called, outside of that context. One of the things that really struck me was uh, the, the story of Julian Elting and uh, Ralph Kerwinio uh, being investigated as a male impersonator, uh, maybe even more stark at the height of the McCarthy era, homosexual panic. We have a person like Adrian Ames, uh, a drag queen, a leader of nightlife in Milwaukee. H how do we square those disparities throughout this timeline? Well, I think that what you look at is like what was considered entertainment, but that entertainment could not translate to real life. The thing is, these people were all okay as long as they were at a distance. When that was bridged and you came into, you left that stage in that other dimension, you kind of crossed that fourth wall, that was where the panic came in. Because then now suddenly it's something else. Now it's insidious, it's perverse, it's sinful, it's uh, criminal. So that has been the dichotomy forever. You're okay as long as you stay in your place. The minute you cross out of that and try to, you know, mingle with the general public, you're a criminal. Yeah. And that that's a really distinct boundary. All of the people that you've mentioned were entertainers and they were entertainment for straight people. They were not, you know, welcoming to gender nonconforming people. They were not welcoming to sexually diverse people. Um, these were shows that were really intended for like upper crust, refined audiences um, whether it was in the 1880s or all the way up until the 1950s when, you know, there was this drag craze in Milwaukee that it was on the level of RuPaul's drag craze today. You know, there were over 20 venues that had nightly drag shows and none of them were gay bars. 
And that's the interesting distinction, I think, that we look at historically is that up until recently, up until maybe the 1970s, uh, drag was not seen as a representation of the LGBT community. It was not seen as, you know, a reflection of one's own true identity. It was seen as kind of like, kind of like a carnival. It was kind of like a novelty act. Well, and that seems to be one of the one of the big things that characterizes um, this pretty large time period, honestly, from the 1880s down through at least the 1950s, the kind of criminalization of being queer, being a female impersonator, a male impersonator, being in any way genderqueer. What did that look like during that time period? Well, I think that the one thing that we're also maybe missing in this context, too, is that you know, through Michael's research, yes, we had this huge explosion where in the 50s, not only Milwaukee, but really all over female impersonator shows. I mean, they were touring, they were doing all these things, right? Um, But they couldn't have a real life. But now the funny thing is, is they are doing these things. They are touring They're Again, it's like drag is really big, but now people are expressing their opinions. So we've kind of come full circle since the 50s. But in between that were all these other moments. That's something that people don't understand today. And that I think was one of the biggest findings of the book was that drag was not part of gay life until the late 1960s. It was not something that was allowed in gay bars. Drag performers or people who were challenging gender norms or, you know, dressing, cross-dressing as it was once known, were simply too risky to have in your property. They would attract attention. Um, Many patrons believed that they were spies for the police. Um, They were presumed to be sex workers rather unfairly. So today we think of, and you hear this rhetoric around, you know, drag performers inducing children into this deviant lifestyle. But I mean, for most of its history as an art form, drag was not something associated with gay people at all. No, and actually it was kind of looked down on. I mean, the funny thing is, is I do remember I was not welcome at certain bars in Milwaukee, even if I wasn't in drag, because I was a drag queen. You know, I mean, and these are gay bars. And you weren't told that you shouldn't be there at the rec room or these, you know, quote unquote, you know, men's bars. But they let you know that your presence wasn't something that they liked. Until AIDS. I think AIDS changed everything. It's interesting looking at the book. Uh, you have this time period called the Golden Age of Drag. Uh, I think it was 1981 to 1991, something like that. And when I think of that time period in LGBTQ history, I, of course, think of this deadly pandemic that was killing so very many young men. What made that moment a a golden time for drag, despite the other things that were happening? The shocking discrimination, the fear-mongering, all of a sudden your presence on stage was needed to shore up the troops, if you will. People went out to clubs throughout the 80s as a measure of support. And so in a strange way, the LGBT community really came together and Queens led the way because they were there. They were the ones that were on stage. They were the ones that were out in front. And another point is that, you know, even before AIDS arrived, we think now in retrospect that the 80s was a decade that was, you know, completely tainted by AIDS. And it was in the later half of the decade, Mm -hmm. at least in Wisconsin. Um, But the first half of the decade was very different than we remember it. 
I mean, we were coming out of the disco era. There was this great sense of liberation and accomplishment and momentum and movement for gay rights. And there was this great sense of access and integration due to the disco movement. Discos were places that like everyone came together from across, you know, racial and sexual and, you know, economic backgrounds. And nowhere demonstrated that better than the gay bars of the era, like Circus or the Red Baron or Park Avenue. So looking at the success of those venues, they were, again, very pioneering investors who created these new spaces and really ramped things up. It feels like right now we're in a different kind of golden age of drag as a result of uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. Your last chapter, of course, deals with this a lot. We have uh, two winners from Milwaukee, Trixie Mattel and Jada Essence Hall. We have another queen from Milwaukee who is just on the current season of Drag Race, James Mansfield. How has that Drag Race, how has that changed the drag world we see now in Milwaukee? Well, I think it's like we're going back to the 50s again. I remember when RuPaul's Drag Race first started on TV, and it was very, like, niche, you know? Like, it was just you were sharing this with a few of your friends. You're like, oh, my God, did you see that show? It's called Drag Race, and it's... And then all of a sudden, it was like, you know, their sister started watching it with them. Then their mom, you know? And all of a sudden, I think, honestly, the show became a phenomenon because it was so accessible to, like, the general public. There was a fallow period there that then got this dramatic uplift in the 2000s because of the show and from there you know sprang all these other stories of people who said wow you know now there's something more to aspire to than just a local title you know a local booking drag queens started looking things differently and the fact that so many people came from milwaukee and from the milwaukee drag scene that have been able to achieve all this success i think especially jada and trixie they're both two sides of a different coin. Jada is just this really talented makeup artist, designer, hilarious, you know, all these things. Trixie is a writer, a musician, a comedian. I'm not surprised. I think Milwaukee's always had a really big creative community. And I think RuPaul's Drag Race kind of pushed it forward. And then, of course, two Hamburger Marys opening here. It was a cool thing to go see drag shows again. So all of a sudden, I think it really, all those things converged in one. And I think that they all converged on a foundation that people didn't even know they had. And I think that is probably one of the most startling things about my work and our work as a history project. There's this whole extensive history out there and heritage that so few people know about and so few people even realize influence them in so many ways the structures and the connections and the the traditions and the rituals that you know were founded over this long series of seven generations is what bred these modern day RuPaul superstars i mean they came up in an environment that was had all of these influences and all of this precedent and they benefited from it and flourished and I think that that's amazing. I mean, I think back to, you know, the, the 50s and the 30s and the even the 1910s and what those people would think if they knew that a hundred years later, there were international superstars coming out of Milwaukee doing drag. I, I think it would just blow their minds. 
BJ, Michael, thank you both so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Thank you. Michael Takash and BJ Daniels are co-authors of A History of Milwaukee Drag, Seven Generations of Glamour. Takash is a curator for the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project, and Daniels is a legendary Milwaukee drag queen. We want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or conversation you'd like to hear on the air, give our community connection line a call. That number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lakeeffect. We'll take one more break and then discuss how to best talk about the holiday tradition of Santa with young children. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. A quick warning to our listeners. If there are any young kids in the room who are looking forward to Santa dropping off presents this holiday season, you may want to tune out for a few minutes. Now, many of us remember the moment we found out the big man dressed in red isn't actually the person delivering presents to our homes on Christmas. For some, it's not a big deal to find out the truth, but for other kids, it can be upsetting. If you're a parent, caretaker, or anyone with small kids in your life, you may be helping keep the magic of Santa Claus alive. But what do you do if a child finds out what they believe in isn't real, or if they start asking questions? To help offer some guidance, I'm joined by Maya Harris, a mental and behavioral health consultant at Mayfair Pediatrics Children's Wisconsin. So the myth of Santa Claus is something that a majority of children have grown up with, but inevitably a parent will have to break the truth to their kid eventually, whether just circumstantial or the kid asks, is Santa real? And it's it's a predicament, right? Deciding how and what to tell kids. Yes, definitely. Definitely a predicament. Um, I would start by saying, I guess first it's really up to the parent or caregiver to decide if they want to even bring up the topic. Um, you know, obviously depending on what your religious and spiritual beliefs are, that might not even be something that is relevant or important, but you know, for others, it's really, it's, it's really up to the caregivers to decide. Uh, and then once, like you said, we kind of talk about, uh, what happens if, uh, they find out, you know, the reality of the situation. Yeah. I would say that it's, it's really a being, you know, as honest as you can and, the reasons why, you know, so uh, when we're talking about holidays, we're talking about traditions. So this might be a tradition um, and explaining what tradition means. Uh, this is something that I did when I was little. I think this idea of magic comes into play too. Like the idea, you know, children often believe in magic and um, often, you know, they have great imaginations. And so, you know, kind of bringing that up this is something that I thought would be fun uh, for you, you know, but it really just depends on, you know, what kind of emotions are coming along with it too. Like kids tend to be more, you know, maybe emotional about it. We want to honor their their emotions about it. Right. And do you think we maybe don't give kids enough credit to recognize when they send something is off or if they're just naturally curious and, and maybe the conversation turns into a great thing. Maybe it's not a heartbreaking event. That's true. Yeah, it could definitely be 
um, them coming to their own conclusion, like, oh, okay, <clears throat> well, somebody else is giving me these gifts and it might not even, you know, occur to them as, as, as emotional. It might just be, you know, okay, that's fine. And they can move on. So it just depends on the child, right. And this, in, in the context and how they're learning, if they end up learning, um, that Santa is, you know, not real. So, yeah. To go into a bit of the the deeper side of it, I mean, ultimately, it's keeping up a lie uh, as as you move along. Some parents take it to various degrees, of course. Um, but do you think keeping up the myth of Santa can harm a child's psychology? Um, you know, I don't have any studies to reference the latter, so I would say no. Um, I mean, it's the same thing as watching a movie that has you know mythical characters in it, right? Um, are those mythical characters real? Again, depending on what the parents and caregivers decide to explain to their children, you know, um, they can decide if they want to keep up that kind of belief about certain things like unicorns. It would be a really great example, I think, or if they want to, you know, explain to them, you know, the um, the reality. So I don't know of any any harm that's been done. Um, what I did want to also incorporate was that if parents to choose to to tell their children that. Santa is not real to be, to be very respectful of other people at school. Cause I remember growing up, what ends up happening is yes, there's somebody that may know the truth or may know the, the latter. So I don't believe in Santa Claus, but that's fine that you do believe. Right. So it's really just being respectable and saying, you know, you don't believe in this or we don't believe in this, but somebody else might, and that's okay. You know, we all have our own different beliefs. So one argument for keeping up the myth is that if kids don't grow up with this tradition, it will deprive them of Christmas cheer, of the holiday spirit. How do you address this? Yeah, let's talk about, you know, so so the connections with Santa and just in general um, religion, spirituality, celebration is that there's more to those things, right? So it's more than just giving and receiving gifts, right? Because I feel like Santa's kind of connected to more like the gift receiving more than giving, but there's some giving involved. Um, but what else, uh, if we kind of look at the whole of a, of celebration, um, holiday season, those kind of things, what else is, what else are we doing? You know, so some, um, some things that came to mind, um, that I wanted to just talk about was, um, togetherness as well as joy and peace is talked about sometimes. Um, but just, um, trying to be more selfless too, right. We, we want to, you know, give to others, think about others. So, yeah, I think those kind of conversations can be really helpful and important. Definitely. One big thing I did want to talk about is the use of Santa Claus as a motivational tool, like as a way to enforce good behavior. You know, kids are always told, like, you got to be good. Otherwise, you won't get presents from this person who will come during the night. So what are the ethics in, in essentially using this as a manipulative parenting strategy? Do you see it that darkly or, you know, what, what can what can be the steep slope that people can go down? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, we do have um, the ability as, as parents and caregivers to provide our children with incentives. Positive reinforcement is 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 what we like to, to talk about it as. But I think that, yeah, it could be a slippery slope. And again, can we talk about traditions and celebrations in a different kind of way as opposed to just good or bad behavior, right? Um, I think if anything in society, there's certain expectations that we have about our behaviors that we should be acting and behaving in certain ways. Nothing wrong with that, right? It's just a matter of the context in which we're talking about being good or bad. Um, and we probably shouldn't be saying good or bad either. We should be just focusing on, 
you know, how can we get along better together? How can we manage our emotions? It's really about managing our emotions and coping with our emotions better, right? So if, if, if a child had a bad year, uh, maybe a lot happened in that year. Maybe they've been struggling a lot. Probably shouldn't put weight on whether they should get gifts or not based on that. You know, um, it's it's just more about how can we help you to have a better year or have a better month um, with your emotions and things that, that's going on. Um, so yeah, I would say let's try not to put too much weight on on the gift giving and, and spend more time talking about celebration, again, togetherness and um, you know, how we can do for others. On the note of this reframing of how we operate and see this time of year, uh, you know, another big factor is some parents try to avoid the big Christmas idea or Santa Claus because perhaps there's financial constraints or like we said, there's a lot has been happening this past year, these past few years for everybody. But kids, they can easily play the comparison game, you know, with their schoolmates, with their friends, and maybe they feel badly if they're not getting the same gifts as others or bigger or better. So that's a hard thing to navigate, too. How would you suggest parents can help kids understand things in a, in a different way to not try and look outwards and, and compare what they have in their Christmas traditions versus others? Yeah. <clears throat> well, again, I think it kind of goes back to, you know, everybody's different and everybody celebrates different things. So, you know, a child might be in a classroom where not everybody's celebrating Christmas, right? And that's maybe confusing for them. So having those conversations that everybody celebrates different things, some people don't celebrate, and so what we do is different from somebody else, but it's okay to share what your tr- traditions are, what you like. And again, be able to understand that if somebody's doing something different, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just what fits best for them or what works for them. Um, I, I did want to add um, <clears throat> that the holidays, I guess, in, in not necessarily something to you know, broach with younger children, right? But you know, we're centered around feelings of joy and, and togetherness uh, during this time of season, but there are people that do struggle in this time of season. So, so again, just being mindful um, that some people have not had the best experiences. So recognizing that maybe not everybody is like you were saying um, in their particular situation, the most joyous during this time of year, and just being aware of that, but that hope that we can incorporate some of these ideas of togetherness and celebration throughout the year, right? Um, not just at this time. So I think one big takeaway from our conversation is the adults are more worried than the kids and maybe we should just simplify it and take a step back. Definitely. Yeah. Like most things, like most things. Yeah. We, we tend to overthink things and, you know, our children are typically going to be pretty resilient and enjoy their time with the holidays. Well, Maya, thank you so much for joining me today and talking about this topic. I appreciate it so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. Maya Harris is a mental and behavioral health consultant at Mayfair Pediatrics Children's Wisconsin. We spoke last year. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers, Sam Woods, and Excret Nunez join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mornson is our executive producer. We also heard from Emily Files, Mayan Silver, and Nadia Kelly from the WUWM News team this week. Jason Reeve is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valeria Navarro-Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. If you've missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, simply download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
Thank you so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.